Great. Good evening. It'd be good if you keep that passage open. Uh, Shall we just pray as we start? Lord God, we do thank you uh, for your your word. And we pray that you'd speak to us tonight through it by your spirit, uh, that we may see more of Jesus for who he is and put our trust in him, we pray. Amen. Great. I wonder how you're feeling about your life at the moment. I guess we all have... Days when we feel up, days when we feel down. The sun's been shining today. My kids have behaved reasonably well. They're still alive. Uh, It's it's been a good day. But that's not what I really mean. What are your deep underlying feelings about life? When you go home, when you drop your public face, perhaps even your church face, when you close the door and rest in the midst of your own thoughts, how do you feel about life? Maybe everything is great, great if it is. But I think for many of us, even those of us who who are Christians, the truth is that we don't always feel that great. I think the reality is often we're quite discouraged, depressed even. God seems quite distant. Life is not quite as we expected it to be, or as we thought it was promised uh, to be. And so our confidence, our sense of purpose is quite low, And although we don't like to admit it, I think sometimes we're restless. Well, if that is us, uh, then the Lord has a message, and it is a promise of a better future. It's a promise of a future that is brought about by a plan centred on the one who is the Lord's servant. What we're looking at tonight is God's answer to the despairing cry of his despondent, discouraged, depressed people the people of God who cry out in verse 14, the verse after the passage we just heard. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. The emphatic answer of this passage is no, no he hasn't. God's plan is perfect. I think it's just helpful to remind ourselves where we are uh, in the book of Isaiah. We've been in it for quite a long time. It's quite easy to kind of lose our bearings um, and and forget the big picture. The big question that the book of Isaiah deals with is, is this. How can the corrupt and faithless city of Jerusalem be transformed into a pure and faithful city? That is a question that's posed back in chapter one. How will the faithless city of Jerusalem, described as a harlot, that's how bad that she was, be transformed into a city of righteousness, the faithful city. And the book of Isaiah is all about tracing the answer to that question. That's why Isaiah is sometimes called a tale of two cities. And Isaiah's answer, his focus is on a messianic figure, a figure introduced by God in his compassion and love. And this figure is portrayed in Isaiah in three ways. First, as Emmanuel, as God with us. God will come and be with his people. Second, he's portrayed as the servant who will come and suffer for the sins of his people. And third, he's seen as a conqueror. A king who will come to reign with power and authority over the whole earth. He will bring an end uh, to all evil. So God will transform the faithless city into a faithful city by God coming and being with us, suffering for his people and conquering all evil. And so here in chapter 49, we find ourselves in the middle section of Isaiah where the focus is on the suffering servant. 
This is all about God coming as a servant to suffer for the sins of the world, to bring about salvation, to make it possible for us to know God personally. It is an amazing passage. And of course, as the Bible unfolds, we see the glorious, full-blown answer to this embryonic portrait that we have in Isaiah. The purposes of God, they focus, don't they, on Jesus Christ. Who is this messianic figure that dominates the book? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the conquering king. It is all about Jesus. So tonight we're looking at Jesus. Jesus, the suffering servant. And we see him through two voices. We see what the servant has to say about himself in the first six verses. And then what God has to say about his servant, verses 7 to 13. I'm just going to look briefly at the portrait of the servant under three headings of these. His calling, his despair, and his mission. So first, the servant's calling. Just have a look at verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. You know, this is the servant crying out to the whole world, not just to Israel, not just to the Jewish nation, but to all nations, to all islands and distant nations. This is the summons, if you like, to the whole world. And you see, the servant has a divine appointment, a God-given task uh, to do. It's a task that was given to him even before he was born. Before he was in the womb, his life is laid out uh, before him. God has even named the servant, although we're not told the name here. You know, don't ever think that Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, some 800 years after this prophecy, was some kind of half-baked afterthought by God, some kind of plan B when everything else hadn't worked. God had planned and predicted to send Jesus as the saviour of the world. And you see how the servant is equipped. Let's have a look at verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of my hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. Yeah, the servant is fully kitted out, isn't he, for the task that he's given, even before he's born. Do you notice the emphasis on the servant's mouth, his speech? This is a description of someone who will have a prophetic ministry, someone who will come and declare God's word to the world. And the picture of the mouth of the sharp sword tells us what this ministry will like, be like. So it's not going to be some kind of cuddly, warm, cup of tea kind of ministry. It's going to be uncomfortable. What can a sharpened sword do? It can cut a man to pieces. An arrow, what does that do? It travels with swift and deadly accuracy to penetrate defences. That is what the words of the servant will be like. The servant will proclaim the word of God to the world with power and authority, and no one will be able to escape. You know, those close by, at close quarters, they're going to be cut down. Those far off, they're going to be hit with an arrow. Defences will be penetrated. And the servant is concealed by God just like an arrow in the quiver. But when the moment is right, God will unleash him onto the world. Of course, that is exactly what happened, isn't it? 
At the right time, Jesus exploded onto the world stage as the most astonishingly powerful and penetrative preacher that had ever been or will ever be. His words were like no other. Just think of them. His words were shocking. No one comes to the Father except through me. His words were disturbing. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Who can say that apart from God? His words accomplished astonishing deeds. The sick were healed. The dead were raised. And through his word, Jesus lovingly held out the hand, welcoming hand of God. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Ordinary people, they were amazed at what they saw, what they heard. They knew that he spoke as one with authority, and their lives were changed forever. And God's word is still at work in the world today. I I vividly remember, as a 14-year-old boy, going to a school Christian union meeting, uh, where the speaker was a guy called Stephen Lungu. Anyone's ever heard of him? But Stephen told us about his life. He'd been living on the streets of Zimbabwe since he'd been abandoned when he was age seven. And then as a young man, he'd led a life of hatred uh, and violence. And in 1962, he went to a huge Christian meeting in a tent. uh, And he was armed with with petrol bombs. And he had the intention of murdering everyone who was in uh, the tent. But as he stood at the back, and as he heard the word of God preached as he prepared... What does Stephen do? He stumbled to the front, he fell on his knees, and he gave his life to Christ. That is the word of God like an arrow, penetrating a heart. And then from that day on, he has preached the word of God the world over. And as Stephen preached the good news of Jesus to that school CUR is at in the 1990s, the word of God, it cut to my heart. I wasn't a violent young man most of the time. I was a pretty privileged um, English schoolboy, pretty sheltered. Yet I knew, I knew I didn't love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength and with all my mind. And I knew that was a problem. The word of God penetrates and it judges the human heart and it changes lives. And all types of people the world over have experienced that, and I've lived, I've had lives changed uh, forever. And you see, the servant is going to display the, to the whole world what it means to lead a fulfilled and God-centered life. Do you see that in verse three? He said to me, "You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor." I don't know much about fashion. You can probably tell. Never been to a fashion show. But it's almost as if Jesus is going to be God's catwalk model. That's the kind of picture. It's a terrible picture, I know, but but hold on to it nonetheless. Catwalk model. He's going to be God's servant displaying to the whole world, showing off to the whole world what it means to lead a God-centered and fulfilled life. It was Israel. It was the people of God who were supposed to have modeled this to the world. They were supposed to have been a light to the nations, but they'd failed. It had gone wrong. But where they failed, this one man, this servant also called Israel, will succeed. Everything Israel should have been and done, he is and he does. 
for he will be the true Israel. So we see the servant's calling. I think second, we see the servant's despair. Do you notice the change of mood as we come to verse verse 4? Just look at verse 4. But I said, I've laboured for no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due to me is the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. So when the servant looks at his work, when he looks at his life and his ministry, what does he see? He sees disappointments and frustrations. It's interesting, isn't it? But, but that is exactly what happens, because Jesus' ministry was tough. He knew what it was to be human. He must have known what it was like to have no strength after a long day verbally jousting uh, with the religious leaders. He must have felt discouraged, surely, as he saw his disciples hear great truths and then argue amongst themselves about which of them was the greatest. How depressing is that? How desperately sad he must have been as he preached the word of God and yet saw many hearts harden and repent and refuse to come to him. But most of all, just consider the despair of Jesus as he faced the cross. That's that's what's been spoken of here in verse 7. That time when the servant will be despised and abhorred by the nation, the Jewish nation. So the crowds that hailed Jesus with, with palm trees as he entered Jerusalem, only a week later called for him to be nailed to a cross and a thief to go free. One of his best mates, Judas, betrayed him for a bit of cash. Another of his mates, Peter, denied three times having anything to do with him at the key moment. And as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood, so tough was it, his disciples couldn't even stay awake. The servant will receive the crown that is rightly his, but first there is a cross to bear. Before the rewards, there is humiliation and rejection. I wonder, surely this is comforting to us. You know, Jesus knew what it was like to be human. He knew what it was like to face setbacks, to suffer disappointments, even from those who were closest to him, those he would have had the greatest hopes for. I think so often we don't feel very successful, do we? I think that's something many of us in this church feel right now. I think many of us are tired and discouraged. We feel frustrated. Our hearts are heavy at times with disappointment. I think our Christian lives, individually and collectively, they can feel like a dry, unfruitful grind. Sometimes we ask, "Is, is it all worth it? Is it all in vain and for nothing? Well, how does a servant handle these feelings of failure? Just look back at the second part of verse 4. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. What does the servant do? The servant is content to place the results of his labour in the hands of his Father in heaven. He knew that if he was faithful, he could trust the outcome of his work into God's hands. What to us may seem 
like a failure, may in God's hands have eternal consequences beyond what we will ever see, ever know in our lifetime. As I was preparing for tonight, I, was, I wondered about that preacher I mentioned in Zimbabwe in 1962. I wonder what state he was in uh, that night. I've got no idea. But consider this. As he faithfully preached that evening, would he have anticipated the dramatic conversion of an armed terrorist that evening? Would he have pictured how Stephen Lungu's powerful worldwide gospel ministry would unfold? Would he have thought, here in this room there is a terrorist who will one day turn to Christ and will one day preach the word of God to a bunch of English schoolboys? And would he have thought that one of those English schoolboys would turn to Christ? And would he have imagined that one of those schoolboys would one day speak at a church in Norwich on one evening in 2014? I suspect not. If we're Christian, we're going to face times when it feels like we labour for no purpose. That is the way of the Christian disciple. We don't see the full timetable and workings of God. So what do we have to do? In those tough moments, we have to fix our eyes on the servant. We have to fix our eyes on Jesus. We have to look to his example, look to his future. You know, our reward is with God. We have to leave it with him. That should be enough. So we see the servant's calling and the servant's despair. I think finally we see the servant's mission. What is the servant's mission? It is to gather up God's people, to restore people to God. Just look at verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. The mission of Jesus is to bring Jacob back to himself, to gather Israel for himself. Israel is God's firstborn son. That is, Israel is a name for the sonship of the people of God. These people are close to the heart of God. They're the sons and daughters of God in a covenant relationship with him. And the mission of the servant is to bring these people who are far off back to himself. And yet, that is not enough. That is too small a thing. Do you see that in verse 6? It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. God is saying, through you, my servant, I will fulfill my purpose of universal salvation. The rescue mission of the servant isn't going to be limited to the Jewish nation of Israel. It's so much bigger than that. It's a mission for the whole World, a mission for all the islands and distant nations spoken of in verse 1. A mission to restore people the world over to an eternal home of peace and plenty. And this universal mission of salvation will lead the servant to the cross. There's something we'll see more of um, as Isaiah unfolds, particularly further on in, in chapter 53. But it's through the cross that the salvation comes. 
Jesus had to go to the cross and die to deal with the problem of our sin, to bring us back into a restored relationship with God, to free us for the great adventure of a life-serving Christ. It is a wonderful truth. I wonder, where do you stand in relation to what the servant did for you? I think for all of us, the wonder of the cross is something we can just so easily lose sight of, just become a bit blasé about, kind of become a bit numb to it. So easy for us just to close our Bibles, harden our hearts to what the servant did, and think it's just beginner's stuff. A couple of weeks I was talking to a, a guy who's involved in a small church, not in Norwich, so don't need to wonder about it. Uh, and he was talking about what his church was up to and doing. And he told me how they were struggling uh, because they couldn't manage to get their vision clear. They couldn't decide what they should be doing. I sort of nodded. It was a funeral. You tend to nod quite a lot at funerals. Uh, I don't want to be too controversial. But actually, what he said was bordering on the ridiculous. Of course, there's got to be a place for wisdom and discernment in how we use our time and resources, but there is a world out there waiting to hear the truth about God. And it is so clear what God has come to do and what the world needs to hear. I think so often we focus our energies inwardly on our own agendas, don't we? We, we debate and divide on the merits of our own little pet projects. How many Christian meetings do we go to where we debate what we should be doing? Absurdly, we analyse how we're going to measure the outcomes. We will never know the outcomes of gospel work. They cannot be measured in human ways. They're in the hands of God, as Jesus has said here, the servant has said. The awesome love of God takes Jesus, the servant, to the cross. And everything that matters is changed by the cross. If we trust in the cross, our status changes from guilty to innocent. If we trust in the cross, God's attitude changes to us from wrath to favour. Everything that matters is changed by the cross. So the cross, it should mean everything to us, be at the heart of what we do. One of my favourite forms of entertainment is satire, you know, the kind of stuff, programmes like Have I Got News For You, uh, Mock the Week, Radio 4's News Quiz, that kind of stuff. Great shows. Yet the tragedy of so many of these shows is the extent to which they so often mock Jesus. The costly mission of Jesus, the servant, is just kind of lampooned for a bit of a cheap laugh. I think perhaps at times our confidence in in Jesus can be shaken. Sometimes it seems Jesus doesn't always feature uh, where it matters in the world. How many world leaders honour Jesus. It doesn't always feel like he is victorious. But make no mistake, the mission of Jesus will be successful. Just look at verse 7. This is what the Lord says. In other words, it is going to happen. And then the second half of verse 7. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. When Jesus approaches, rulers will stand up. There will be a day when everyone, including every ruler there's ever been, from Hitler to President Assad to Vladimir Putin, all will bow the knee in judgment to Jesus. 
Some voluntarily, some will be compelled to do it, but all will bow the knee. It will happen. It is not in doubt. This is what the Lord says. And in case we're left with any doubt, after all that, that God's people will make it to the end, we're given this list of reassurances in verses 8 to 12. There is no doubt that through his servant, God will restore his people. It is totally emphatic. This is what the Lord says, verse 8. It's going to happen. Just look at these assurances as we draw to a finish. Look at verse 9. God will provide for his people. They will feed beside the roads and find pastures on every hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst. God will be ready to meet the needs of his covenant people. God will protect his people, verse 10. Nor will the desert heat, nor the sun beat upon them. God will protect his people from whatever threats come their way. God will compassionately guide his people, verse 10. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. And no barrier will get in the way, verse 11. I will turn all my mountains into rows, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. We live in the age of the project manager. God is a great project manager. Nothing will get in the way of the great eternal homecoming from the islands and distant nations of the world. People are heading home and it cannot be stopped. This is a picture of of the wonderful, the dazzling bright future for all of God's people for all those who've put their trust in Jesus Christ. And there can be only one response, can't there, to a God who is like this, verse 13. Verse 13, Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. God looks at his people And he sees they are afflicted. How does he respond? He loves them. He has compassion on them. He comforts them. He strengthens them. And he will bring them home to the glorious, redeemed new creation. What a promise that is. All because of the work of the suffering servant. Shall we pray? Lord God, we do just thank you for the wonderful truths in this passage. The truth that you are a God who has compassion on your people. You love your people. And you want to bring us home. And we praise you for the astonishing work of the servant, Jesus, on the cross, where his blood was shed, that we may be restored to you, forgiven people, set free in you. We praise you tonight for the the cross of Christ and all that it means. 
And we ask that we would live under the cross each day of this week and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.